All right, let's turn our attention now to the questions and answers that have come in in the month of November 2022. The first one, what's that? The first one says in Genesis 24, 29, we learn that Rebekah, whom Abraham's servant sought as a bride for Isaac, had a brother whose name was Laban. It seems that this same Laban that Jacob dealt with for the hands in marriage of Leah and Rachel. If so, how much time passed from Rebekah's marriage to Isaac, subsequent birth, and growth to maturity of the twins Jacob and Esau? This must mean that Laban is very old when he barters with Jacob for 14 years in Genesis 29. Is Laban a type for anyone or thing in the Bible? How old must Laban have been by Genesis 29? So let's go back and look at the verses that are applicable here. Start in Genesis chapter 24, because the person who asked this question is right. Rebecca and Laban are brother and sister. And if we look in Genesis chapter 24, verse 29 through 60, it says, Now Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban, and Laban ran out to the man by the well. So it came to pass when he saw the nose ring and the bracelets on his sister's wrists, and when he heard the words of his sister Rebekah saying, Thus the man spoke to me, that he went to the man, and there he stood by the camels at the well. And he said, Come on in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. Then the man came to the house, and he unloaded the camels and provided straw and feed for the camels and water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Food was set before him to eat, but he said, I will not eat until I have told about my errand. And he said, Speak on. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has blessed my master greatly and has become great. And he has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male and female servants and camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old, and to him he has given all that he has. Now my master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife from my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, in whose land I dwell. But you shall go to my father's house and to my family and take a wife from my son. And I said to my master, Perhaps the woman will not follow me. But he said to me, The Lord, before whom I walk, will send his angel with you and prosper your way. You shall take a wife from my son, from my family, and from my mother's house. You will be clear from this oath when you arrive among my family, for if they will not give her to you, then you will be released from my oath. And it goes on. But what we see in this story is, when they come to the house, and Rebecca wants to agree to the marriage, who is it that begins to negotiate? Her, her Laban. Laban, which is her brother, so which means he's a grown man at this point. He prepares the house. He prepares the lodging. He prepares all that. So he must be at least, let's say, 20. It doesn't tell us exactly, but let's take that as, since she's 14, Rebecca is, then he must be at least 20 to be in charge of the house and be arranging the wedding. Did he say she 
14. Turn to Genesis 25, 20. It does not say that, no. Genesis chapter 25, verse 20. In Genesis 25, verse 20, it tells us how old Isaac is. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah as his wife. So Isaac's 40 years old when he married Rebekah. It's the sages that say she was 14. It never tells us in here how old she is. But the Jewish sages recorded that she was 14. Right, wrong, otherwise, she's much younger than Isaac, and Isaac's 40, so... Generally, women back then got married around 14 or 15. I actually read one of the portions last week. Mm -hmm. I'm not mistaken, they said she was three years old when she married. No, no. That was one of the, that was the yeah. weird thing. You that can't was, marry a girl who's three years no, that old. That was one of the sages. Yeah, they were wrong. In fact, oftentimes a man would sell his daughter to somebody to be a servant until she got old enough to marry him. It would be to position her for the marriage. So they say she was Hello, 14. Yellow. Yeah, oh, sorry. Not only that, but a three-year-old wouldn't do very well at toting big jars of water <laughs> to feed the camels, would she? Yeah. No, she would not. Still wouldn't obey. Yeah. But what the scripture does tell us is that Isaac's 40 years old when he marries Rebekah. And then in Genesis 25, 26, they tell us how old Isaac is when Jacob is born. So in 25, 26, it says, Afterward his brother came out, and his hand took hold of Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob, Yahoo, which means fink or supplanter. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. So Isaac got married at 40 years old. Jacob is born when Isaac is 60, so 20 years have passed. And Laban then... If he was 20 years old when the marriage took place, Laban would be about 40. And then Jacob was 84 when he married Leah and Rachel, which would have put Laban then about 124 years old. To answer the first part. Part of it's in the scripture, part of it you have to go to the sages. But roughly, Laban's about 124 years old when Jacob marries Leah and Rachel. The most important part of the question is, is Laban a type for anyone or thing in the Bible? I've never read anything that suggested that he is a type or a picture of something. The only thing I could come up with is, if I had to really stretch, you can make a general argument that he is kind of like an early picture of the false messiah because he makes a promise to Jacob and then goes back on his promise and breaks his promise. As in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, the false Messiah makes a covenant with Israel and then breaks that covenant. But other than that, I don't know of anything that suggests Laban will be a type for anyone or anything in the Bible. Does anybody else have a different idea? Nope. Okay. Then let's go to the next question. While the Jews were captives in Babylon, were they allowed to worship God, offer sacrifices, observe feasts and festivals, teach their children Jewish traditions, etc.? And the answer to that is sometimes yes, sometimes no. So let's look at the biblical answer and why I say that. 
Go to Daniel chapter 3. These are going to be stories we know well, but we'll see how they relate to this question. Daniel chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And King Nebuchadnezzar went, sent word to gather together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered together for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then Herod cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And of course, you know, this is where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego get cast in the furnace. But why were they cast into the furnace? Because they were not permitted to worship God. They were required to worship this golden image. And why had Nebuchadnezzar set up this golden image? Because the dream Daniel interpreted that said Babylon will be overthrown by Medo-Persia. And he set up an image to say, God's wrong. My kingdom shall never end. This is before he gets to eat grass for seven years. Okay, verse 13. Let's skip forward ahead in the story. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. <clears throat> so they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Of course, he gave him a chance. He said, We're going to play the music and let you bow down to it, and then I'll know it's okay. Did they bow down to the image? They did not. So they were cast into the fiery furnace. Did they perish there? No. Some people did perish, though. Who was that? The ones who threw them into the furnace. Because they had heated the furnace seven times hotter. When Nebuchadnezzar looked in, he didn't see three men. He saw four. Who was the fourth one? He said he was like the son of man. That was our Messiah Yeshua. In there, probably toasting marshmallows, but kosher ones only. Then on to Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 to 36. Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 to 36. After eating grass for seven years, living outside like an animal, Nebuchadnezzar comes back to his right mind and decides that, you know what? Everyone should worship the God of Daniel. So in verse 34 it says, At the end of the time I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me. 
And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth, no one can restrain his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom and my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted to me. I was restored to my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth and just, in his ways justice, and those who walk in pride he is able to put down. So in Daniel chapter 3, before the seven years, the children of Israel were not allowed to worship God. But after Nebuchadnezzar eating grass for seven years, now they are. And in fact, all the kingdom is called upon to worship God. And then we come to Daniel chapter 6, starting in verse 1. At the end of Daniel chapter 5, Babylon's overthrown and Medo-Persia takes command of the world. Daniel chapter 6, verse 1. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be over the whole kingdom. And over these three governors of whom Daniel was one, that the satraps might give account to them, so the king would suffer no loss. Then this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. So the governors and satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find no charge or fault because he was faithful. No, is any error or fault found in him? Then he's been said, We shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. So these governors and satraps thronged before the king and said thus to him, King Darius, live forever. All the governors of the kingdom, the administrators and satraps, the counselors and advisors have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. So the first thing that happens when the Medes and the Persians take over is his ruling subordinates say we got to make a law that for 30 days no one can worship any other god except you. And of course, what did Daniel do? He opened the door and prayed to the Lord our God and they threw him in the lion's den. You know what? The lions were not hungry for some reason. So we're back to the children of Israel cannot worship God. And then what happens? The people that plot against Daniel get eaten by the lions and then Cyrus... When he comes to power, and they show him the prophecies, and Isaiah says, now we should all worship the God of Daniel again. So they go through phases. Sometimes they're allowed to worship God. Sometimes they're not. 
Sometimes they're commanded to worship God, and sometimes they're prohibited. Did Moses not prophesy that they would worship gods of stone and wood? Did Moses not prophesy that they would worship gods of stone and, and wood? That's in Dan, um, Deuteronomy chapter 28. Yeah, in other yep. lands, yeah, so it, was, it was actually, they were fulfilling prophecy. They were in fact fulfilling prophecy. That's why he said the answer to the question is sometimes yes, sometimes no. Depends on the circumstances and the attitudes of the king. Number next. When the people returned to Israel from the Babylonian captivity, did they observe the Sabbath years? Which is a really good question, because why did they go into captivity? For not keeping it. So let's start with Exodus chapter 23. Exodus chapter 23, verses 10 to 11. Here we have the command for the Sabbath year. Exodus 23, starting in verse 10. Six years you shall sow your land and gather in its produce, but the seventh year, that's the Sabbath year, you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. In like manner you shall do with your vineyard and your olive grove. Let's go to Leviticus 25. Leviticus 25, verses 1 through 7. Leviticus 25, verses 1 through 7. And the Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land which I give you, then the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its fruit. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall neither sow your field nor prune your vineyard. While it grows of its own accord of your harvest you shall not reap nor gather the grapes of your untended vine, for it's a year of rest for the land. And the Sabbath produce of the land shall be food for you, for you, your male and female servants, your hired men, and the stranger who dwells with you. For your livestock and the beasts that are in your land, all its produce shall be for food. So God's command is you can work the land for six years, but the seventh year the land is to rest you can eat what grows of itself, but you can't harvest it into the barns. It's for anybody and everybody to go out and pick and eat from. Same chapter, Leviticus 25, let's look at verses 20 to 22. And if you say, what shall we eat in the seventh year, since we shall not sow nor gather in our produce, then I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year, and it will bring forth produce enough for three years. And you shall sow in the eighth year and eat old produce until the ninth year, until its produce comes in, you shall eat of the old harvest. So the people don't have any worry about going hungry. God provides a, a plentiful, bountiful harvest before the Sabbath year. Now go to Leviticus 26. God makes some specific promises. 
Leviticus 26, starting in verse 33. He says, if you don't do what I command you, verse 33, it says, I will scatter you among the nations and draw out a sword after you, just like Deuteronomy 28 does. Your land shall be desolate and your cities waste. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbath as long as it lies desolate and you are in your enemy's land. Then the land shall rest and enjoy its, ha- its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate, it shall rest for the time it did not rest on your Sabbath when you dwelt in it. So God tells them right here in Leviticus, in the wilderness, that when they don't keep the Sabbath year, they're going to go into captivity. Every year of captivity for every year, they did not let the land rest. Then if we go to 2 Chronicles, Second Chronicles chapter 36, we're going to find that they did not let the land rest, and God did exactly what he said he was going to do. 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verses 20 and 21. Second Chronicles 36, verses 20 and 21. And those who escaped from the sword he carried away to Babylon, where they became servants to him and his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. As long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Now to Nehemiah chapter 10. The question is, what about when they returned? Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 31. Jeremiah, Nehemiah 10, verse 31. If the peoples of the land brought wares or any grain to sell on the Sabbath day, we would not buy it from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we would forgo the seventh year's produce and the exacting of every debt. So they promised, we are going to keep the Sabbath year from year to eternity. And that's the last we hear of it. There is no record in the scripture that they did it. They promise it. But there's no record they did it. I searched and searched for extra biblical things like Josephus to say they kept that Sabbath year every seventh year and I just haven't found it. <laughs> in the book of Malachi, you know, the Lord is railing against the people. Lord is railing against the people for for not bringing in the tithe because. Yeah, if we give it to them, what do we have to eat? So if they're doing the, neglecting the tithe, you know good and well they were neglecting the Sabbath year. Yeah, because they were neglecting the tithe because they were afraid that God wouldn't do what he promised. So you know good and well. So you know good and well they weren't going to let the land life follow. So we never see the fulfillment of the promise, just the promise. Kingdom went into uh, 
captivity, exile, who knows how long that would be. I mean, how many Sabbaths they missed. Yeah, that's true. So um, I would like to tell you that when Israel came back into the land, the southern kingdom of Judah after Babylonian captivity, that they lived according to the commandments, but we know better, don't we? They very quickly turned back to each man doing what was right in his own eyes. Did, did they not keep a land Sabbath this past year? They declared this past year the Sabbath year and that the land would lie fallow, and some did, some didn't. But they didn't say it's because we've looked back and this is the seventh year of the cycle back to the exodus that they have no idea but but this was the but they first, declared it but this is the first time since israel was declared a nation in 1948 that they actually proclaimed a sabbath this year. was the first time that they actually proclaimed a sabbath year and some of the farmers observed it some did not so actually the government was helping to sponsor them so that they could have income because today it's quite different you need a lot of income to survive now. Yep, but even so, some of the farmers did leave the land fallow, and some, some sold, didn't. Sold it to the Arab neighbors. <laughs> yep, find a way around it. Yeah. So the reason they can't say for sure that this past year was a Sabbath year or that this year is a year of Jubilee is because they didn't have anything to count from. Yeah, unfortunately. The next one says, what does cut off from his people mean? Was the offender banned from participating in worship services or actually forced to leave the community? Actually, it turns out to be worse than I thought it was. Let's go back to Exodus chapter 31. Exodus chapter 31, verses 14 and 15. Exodus chapter 31, verses 14 and 15. You shall keep the Sabbath, therefore, for it's holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. For whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. Work shall be done for six days, but the seventh is the Sabbath of rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. So, in these two verses, what does cut off from among his people mean? Put to death. It didn't just mean get kicked out of the peoples. And that makes sense. When the man was gathering the sticks on the Sabbath, and they came to Moses and said, what should we do? He went to the Lord, and the Lord said, what? Kill him. Now, let's look also at Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus chapter 23. I wonder what Leviticus 23 is about. The appointed times of the Lord, right? The Moedim. Verses 29 to 30. Verses 29 to 30. This is not about the Sabbath day. This is about the Day of Atonement. You shall do no work on that same day, for it's the day of atonement, to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For any person who is not afflicted in soul on that same day shall be cut off from his people. 
And any person who does any work on that same day, that person I will destroy from among his people. The you know what? Destroy them from among his people. So again, to be cut off from his people is to be put to death. And now I'm going to read from an article called Cut Off from the People, colon, The Punishment of God by Andrew Gass from January 30th of 2020 from the Bible in a year. It says, amidst the teachings of the Torah, there's a phrase that appears multiple times that is worth deeper consideration, quote, cut off from his people, end quote. The phrase appears multiple times in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and even makes an appearance in Genesis 17:14 as the consequence to breaking the covenant of circumcision. It is given as a consequence to a wide variety of violations. Not adhering to the Passover, Exodus 12, 15, and 19. Profaning the Sabbath, Exodus 31, 14. Improperly eating of fellowship offerings, Leviticus 7, 20 to 21, 25, and then chapter 19, verses 5 to 8. Sexual immorality, Leviticus 18, 29, and Leviticus 20, 18. Offering sacrifices to pagan idols or engaging in pagan worship, Leviticus chapter 17, verse 4, and verses 8 to 9, and Leviticus 20, verses 3 to 6, and a number of other covenant violations. In particular, this punishment seems to be what Moses calls, for what Moses calls, quote, high-handed sins in Numbers 15, verses 30 to 31. While there are numerous examples of unintentional sins that were pardoned through sacrifices or a period of ritual uncleanness, there were some sins that were done in flagrant disregard of the, the law of the Torah. It is these violations that the punishment of, quote, cut off from his people, end quote, shows up. So what exactly is this punishment? Why is it re reserved for these worst types of intentional sin? Next paragraph. One of the more common interpretations of this phrase has been the idea of excommunication or banishment. Yes, what I always heard. If you violate the covenant laws, you were removed from the nation made an outcast. While this is a popular idea, it would seem unlikely given a context to the phrase, like we just read. Yeah. In Leviticus 17.10, where Israel is prohibited from consuming blood, God himself is the one who says, I will cut him off from among his people. A similar condemnation comes in chapter 20, verses 2 to 3, for the Israelite who sacrifices his offspring to Moloch. And again, it is God who performs the cutting off. Given the nature of many of the crimes associated with this punishment, such as sexual immorality, eating fellowship offerings outside of allowed times, etc., it would be difficult for the Israelite legal system to have meted out justice for these events, particularly given the nature of Israelite justice requiring witnesses, that these crimes would often be done in private where no one would see the crime. It would seem then that this cutting off punishment was not a physical banishment, but a spiritual punishment handed down by God himself. This is supported by the fact that there are multiple occasions, such as an offering to Moloch, where an Israelite is both executed for their crime and, quote, cut off from their people. If someone is executed, banishing them from the Israelite nation would seem like an unnecessary step. You've got to give them that one. 
Richard C. Steiner, a scholar of Semitic languages, argues that the phrase, quote, to be cut off from one's people, end quote, can be read as an antonym. What's an antonym? It's an opposite of the phrase, quote, to be gathered to one's people. The latter phrase is used in passages such as Genesis 25.8, when a notable character dies. The meaning of this description has also been disputed in scholarly circles. While some have argued that gathered to one's people simply means buried in a grave with relatives and ancestors, and that is true what it means, this would seem to be argued against by the cases of the word in Genesis. Abraham is pointedly not buried with his people in Mesopotamia, but a cave in Canaan where only Sarah resides. Jacob is gathered to his people in Egypt before they undertake the weeks-long journey to take Jacob's body to Canaan and bury him. In fact, several scholars have noted that the burial of a patriarch in the event of being gathered to his people are consistently noted as separate terms and events in Genesis. What then does, quote, gathered to his people, end quote, mean? It seems likely that this is a reference to the afterlife and the concept of reunification with the ancestors and relatives that have died before someone. I'm not going to read the rest of the article, but he is right in that too. That when you gather to one's people, not only is it being put in the same ossuary box, but it means gathered with your loved ones in eternity. And what he's saying is that to be cut off from one's people indicates that you're not going to go to heaven to join them. That you have so offended God that when you're put to death, your end goal or end result is not the kingdom of heaven, but rather destruction. And given that, it's 8 o'clock. We will stop here. We'll pick up next week, Lord willing, in the next question.